0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Lutofsky.
1: And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And
0: today we are doing a little Jamie Lee Curtis double feature.
1: The idea here was to extend a little bit of our Halloween week weekend. We did in the previous episode our triple feature of three movies picked based on the masks from Halloween 3, just as our random, but I thought really cool theme. And then after that, I was thinking about the fact that I always remembered having seen Terror Train, one of Jamie Lee Curtis's other slasher movies, a million times on cable years and years ago, which we can talk later about how sensible that is to anybody that like at around 11 years old, I was seeing Terror (laughs) Train. But anyway, so I remember that. And it it seems like one of the ones that's hard to find, and then I saw a while back that it had popped up on Amazon Prime, and I thought, oh, good, we should watch that. And then when we were done with the Halloween episode, I thought, hey, and I looked it up, and even though I'm well aware of her Scream Queen status, and actually the term Scream Queen has come into question quite legitimately by a lot of people who have been given that label, though she seems to still be embracing it and okay with it, so we'll go with it She's
0: happy that it's paid the rent.
1: Well, I mean, the the Scream Queen label has been questioned in terms of its gender dynamics. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, But she still seems to be okay with it. But anyway, um, so I was thinking about her status and, oh, we could do that. And then I thought, oh, we could also do Prom Night because that's another one. We have talked in past episodes about Halloween, obviously. If you go to an archive episode of Doctor of the Dead, we did a run of all the Halloween movies and talked about Halloween. And then just a few episodes ago, we did an episode of Ghouls in the House. We talked about The Fog. And I thought, okay, we've covered two of her most iconic slasher films. And we also talked about Halloween 2 when we did the Halloween run. So I thought, let's do Terror Train and Prom Night. And actually, when I looked it up, despite being aware of all this for so many years, I had never really noticed how concentrated her era really was. That she ran through doing a number of films almost entirely shot in 1979 and then quickly ran out of steam on it and wanted to get away from it and also spent many years really trying to bury that part so i looked it up and i found out that if we did terror train and prom night we would effectively finish off her single most busy year as a scream queen and just to clarify this for everybody when she got the gig in halloween in 1978 She had done a couple episodes of things like Quincy and Columbo, and she had a role in Operation Petticoat, and then she did Halloween. Right after Halloween, she did an episode of The Love Boat and an episode that many of us of a certain generation probably remember really well of Buck Rogers, which was almost like an homage to Halloween, where she and Buck are hunted down by a robot that can't be stopped. And then in 1980, in a row, The Fog, Prom Night, and Terror Train. And then basically, that is it in 81. She does two more movies that could be construed as part of this. Road Games, which I have never seen. We'll get to that. And, <laughs> uh, and Halloween 2, which pretty much was the end. But what fascinated me was when I looked this all up, I found out that all this was shot in 1979. She did The Fog with John Carpenter and Deborah Hill in the spring of 79, and then went to Canada... And shot Prom Night and Terror Train, like, several months in a row, straight through to the end of the year. It's no
0: wonder she got burned out on it.
1: Yeah, because it's also, it's not just about the typecasting. It's like, her whole year was just shooting this stuff and screaming, non-stop.
0: And these are movies that I had never seen before. Neither Terror Train nor Prom Night had I seen before we launched into this. So it was a first viewing for me.
1: I'd seen Terror Train, I know, a lot of times. I think as a kid, I was just fascinated by the fact that for at least one small part of it, the killer is wearing a Groucho Marx mask, and I liked that. (laughs) I
0: suspect that was your draw.
1: um, Prom Night, I know I had to have seen at some point, but watching it now, I just don't remember any of it. So I know I would have encountered it. And actually, if we're going to do this properly... Uh, we should lead off by talking about prom night because that was actually the first one of that right after the fog that's the first of the two she did in Canada we'll go chronological we're gonna go chronological so the first prom night which also means splitting up our little bonus film but we'll get to that we will Night actually, I think, impressed both of us.
0: It really did. I mean, a lot of people talk about this movie and, and put it in there with the sort of quintessential must watch. If you love horror, you should see this. And after watching it, I would definitely agree. I mean, we have seen a lot, like a lot, a lot of horror movies that are done... Just for sheer exploitation. Uh, Things that are done because they want to have shock value, they want to hit all the marks, tick all the boxes. They want to
1: see if they can do the blood effects and the, you know.
0: Yeah, sometimes we'll see a movie, um, especially movies from the 80s, where it looks more like it's an audition reel for the special effects guy, that like there's not so much a plot but just special effects strung together. This is not one of those movies. This is a movie that's very artfully shot and it's very artfully assembled. Uh, It's something that feels, I mean, to sound, I guess, pretentious about it, but it feels like a film. If you want to separate film from movie, it feels like a film experience.
1: Well, I should mention, so it's directed by Paul Lynch, who went on, I was surprised, to direct a lot of television, a lot of American television, including uh, Star Trek Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, multiple episodes of both. And uh, it features music by Carl Zitra and Paul Zaza. And as you noticed, Zitra was the one that did the music for Black Christmas. Zaza was the one apparently that wrote tons of disco stuff in this. That had to be made to sound like hits, but not because they didn't want to license any of the hits. Although they shot one set with all the hits. And by the way, in just getting ready for this, I found out they actually did have a lawsuit because it sounded so similar. There was that one that really just sounds like, uh, what, I'll like, survive?
0: Yeah, there's you know. one. It's either I Will Survive or Dancing Queen or something. There's yeah. there's a big disco, like epic song and one of the dance scenes i'm like are you sure they wrote these themselves because it, it sounds just like it
1: and the guy who's credited for cinematography is sky robert new but i think one of the things we were really struck by with prom night well first of all prom night is apparently i didn't wasn't even aware how much has been regarded as one of the foundational slasher movies that inspired many that came after it in a way that i didn't realize i figured well yeah sure halloween and friday the 13th but this one i wouldn't have thought but it is maybe it's because we also still haven't revisited a lot or visited a lot of the 80s ones that i remember vaguely like the burning and the prowler and all these other ones
0: maybe but i mean you can still see the influence into the 90s and into the 2000s yeah there were a couple times in watching it that you and i both felt like oh okay i can see maybe where they pulled from this a little bit for scream
1: yeah right and and uh, we did also we're not gonna waste time with it i don't think but we did also recently watch cutting class one of the later <laughs> 80s slasher movies with brad pitt and his, his first big roles and that was one of the most awful movies we've ever seen of any, I,
0: of any genre.
1: But I think it was also inspired by Prom Night. But we're I think we were talking we were watching it, though, is that Prom Night has a phenomenal, like you said, it looks like a film. There's a lot of diffused lighting and a lot of, like, almost a dreamlike quality to it. Almost like pre-Nightmare on Elm Street, there's kind of a weird feeling like you're ne- it never quite feels like reality in the movie. And then the other thing was uh, some really, you kept saying Hitchcock, some very hitchcockian suspense and shots including a great sequence that basically shows you all the locations that are going to be important later in a chase sequence and you knew that but it still was cool like oh i see they're mapping it out for us this is what's going to happen and i
0: feel like i only knew it because so many films that i've seen that were made after it have used some of the similar foreshadowing but it was just such a great way to piece together of like everybody's going to go to the school for the prom and you get all of these artful shots of empty hallways, a close-up of chained doors that are locked, dark stairwells. And my first thought, and I said it out loud, was, well, this is where somebody's going to get chased later and you're going to know as soon as they run down there they can't get out those doors because they're chained shut. There's also a sort of obsession with telephones and close-ups, like loving close-ups of coiled telephone cords.
1: Nick? Wendy, do you still like to play games? Oh. That's right. Another thing that I really was struck by in this was it felt like it owed a lot more to the Italian giallo films of the 70s than it did to the sort of, the well like the era it was about to be a part of it's very giallo like the the close-ups the phone calls the voice the role of the police who are maybe a bit more effective and competent than what giallo fans usually expect from the police where they're usually like almost inconsequential in many giallo films and ultimately useless but there's there was sort of that aspect of it and it's kind of a legitimate mystery where you can try to piece together there are a couple shots i think that don't play fair there's at least one silhouette of the killer that is clearly different hair than the person who's the killer i guess Um, you
0: could argue if the killer was already wearing something like over their head at the time
1: oh that's right and there is an element of this that's uh that's interesting well we're just going to do full spoilers maybe we we should
0: before we launch into plot we'll say full full spoilers ahead on this one
1: okay so anyway (laughs) but the other interesting thing about both these movies is i think today we look back on them and it's fascinating to look at the ways in which both of these films also deal with issues of gender and transvestism and um the fact that both of these killers either well one of them was really a transvestite in real life that's terror train but in this one without really making it too clear you kind of get a sense at the end that he's dressing well okay so anyway it's her well, brother it's, <laughs> it's her brother killing everybody uh, and
0: the episodes over the end
1: well we said spoilers <laughs> so
0: why don't we wind our we'll wind our way back to that
1: okay we'll wind our way back to that It's like a lot of slashers. It starts off with an early thing that like, here's the thing that sparks the creation of a killer. And in this case, it's a group of kids that basically hound another kid to death through the window of an abandoned building.
0: Playing the weirdest game of hide and go seek I have ever experienced. It's like the
1: killer is here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they've created their own. I mean, it's creative, Mm -hmm. but they've created their own version of hide and seek Where the person seeking is the killer and they shout the killer is coming as a way of sort of announcing they're entering a room. And if they catch you, you also then become a killer and it pluralizes the killers are coming like the killer is going to get you. And then the last person found, I guess, becomes the killer in the next round. Except when it's somebody who they don't like, who wasn't playing with them originally, and then they just continue shouting and hounding and pushing until she falls out a window.
1: Again, this movie, in terms of it being an inspiration in a clear line, direct to things like, I know what you did last summer, they all gather together and say, okay, we're all going to agree not to talk about this. The girl That Dies is Robin, who's Jamie Lee Curtis's character in this, Kimberly, Kim. It's her younger sister, who was a twin to her younger brother, Alex. And as I already tipped right from the thing, hey, I said spoilers, Alex is the killer turns out as we find out by the end the brother was there and saw this happen to his twin sister
0: they thought they'd get away scot-free nobody would see that they were there
1: but one of the weirdest things i thought about it one that like doesn't ever get driven home in any distinct way is that when there's a final reveal and by, by the way another thing is both this and terror train both these movies end incredibly abruptly like almost immediately after the death of the killer it's like goodbye we're done no no time to process we gotta go and <laughs> but i mean like at the end when he's revealed he, there's there was one throwaway line where her mother mentions have you found my lipstick anywhere can you try you know where my lipstick went and at the end when kim jamie lee curtis takes the mask off and sees her brother he's wearing lipstick and what looks like more makeup too and i said to you at the time they're not making it, they're not like putting a button on it in any distinct way, but it really looks like we're supposed to believe he kind of like assumed the identity of his sister, that like he was dressing up a little bit as her to honor her and kill the ones that had done it to her. But they don't really make that point, but there's something there about the fact that he's assuming. A woman's identity.
0: I can't quite tell what they were trying to do with it. Because one thing could just be trying to throw people off. Because there were a bunch of times throughout where I would catch a glimpse of like an eye or like a mouth through the mask. And I said to you, is this the mother that's doing this? Like is the mother the killer?
1: There's a lot of good clues to suggest that's the case. So the
0: question there is, was he just trying to throw people off so that he could get away with it? Or does it go deeper than that? And was he trying to essentially channel her so I that really, she could exact the revenge herself?
1: I really think that's the point. But I don't think the movie really went for it as, as much as you'd expect.
0: Not completely.
1: I not. mean, I wouldn't have wanted like, um, I mean, there's, there's a, you know, for anybody that, well, I guess most people listening to this probably do. But like you get to the end of Psycho. You get the the psychiatrist do the really kind of awkward for that movie info dump at the end where he explains everything. I wouldn't necessarily say I want that, but it would have been interesting to have something, some kind of commentary to say. It's like, you know, in the end, I think he was more Robin than Alex. Something, a line. Give us some reason why that's there. And I think that's intentional, but uh, it's a weird moment. And the mother's played by Antoinette Bauer. Anybody that knows classic Star Trek will remember her as Sylvia from the Halloween episode, Cat's Paw. And oddly enough, her father, the principal. How awkward is that to have your own father as the principal of the school you're going to? That's weird. I couldn't
0: imagine it.
1: The principal is Leslie Nielsen, which is crazy. <laughs> because this is one of the last movies he did before Airplane Hit. And his whole career just went full on into comedy. But in this, he's straight, completely and i never bought it for a second i kept
0: I, expecting him to do something goofy i guess because i've never seen him do something serious his
1: whole career he was deadly serious and did drama and everything and then he did airplane and suddenly it was like it awakened him oh yeah i'm an, I'm a weirdo and it's like <laughs> i'm just doing this now forever and he loved it but it's just weird seeing him in this
0: i don't know but i mean it it works in a sense they're all very believable as a family and it's one of the things we were talking about about how they're believable as a family they're also all believable as actual teens and like actual conversation It, it felt very much the way we talk about halloween feeling when they're all talking with each other interacting with each other that the prom actually looked Like, it could be a prom in 1979, like, in the gym of the school.
1: This movie also owed a little bit in design and and tone to Mm Carrie, the Sissy Spacek, Carrie.
0: Yeah, I could see that. But
1: yeah, you're right. There's a reality to this that really helps it also. It's also fascinating that both of these movies that, like, came about because they wanted to at least partially capitalize on the success of Halloween... Are connected in some ways. Like, I was fascinated by how everybody involved in these, someone knew somebody. In this case, Paul Lynch, who was the director, had a meeting with Erwin Yablins, who was the producer of Halloween, and wanted to do that. And, like, mm-hmm. after having a meeting with him, I was like, I'll do that. And then getting her was like, this is what I want to do. So there's that. And we'd all also read that she had spent the day shopping and spending time with uh, the guy who played her brother so that they could like loosen up and and like almost everybody in this apparently that isn't a name uh it was all like local canadian actors and everything and it really feels like they're trying like probably trying more than an american cast might have tried or a non-previously student cast would have tried and they really do seem real they're 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 good at it
0: yeah i mean in a sense you get a whole bunch of people ostensibly they probably saw this and Knowing that Jamie Lee Curtis is going to be attached to the project, that she just had success with a film that you can kind of get a little bit more star recognition. That maybe this is going to put you in front of people who might not otherwise see you. Presumably, even though I am not as familiar with his body of work, that Leslie Nielsen is also a name. Sure. in this for them especially like in canada and yeah. and working with him so it kind of gave him this opportunity and they're all just so earnest in their performances yeah
1: it says i uh, was looking at a lot of them had recently graduated from university of toronto montreal theater school and like we were saying it takes what like a good hour or so before anything really like horror related happens you're just spending time with these people for a the good part of. The i day. mean
0: aside from the death of the little girl at the beginning that sort of launches it. And even that takes a lot longer. I feel like in a modern movie, it would start like almost in the opening credits with like kids chasing another kid and she falls. And then the credits finish and the kids are like, all right, nobody talk about this to anyone. And then the movie starts, but this, that whole sequence takes like 10 minutes. I mean, Mm -hmm. they go through, you kind of get to see these characters Abandoned, empty schools are also inherently creepy in the way that hospitals and things are. It was clearly like an older school building, I guess, that wasn't in use anymore. And the kids would run around and play in it because kids, I guess. I was remarking when we were watching it that the movie is a pretty tight hour and a half. And they don't actually... Get to the prom until like an hour into the movie. And there are some creepy things that happen here and there some rogue phone calls, a smashed mirror, some like torn photos. But in that first hour after the flashback, you know, this was six years ago, little sister thing, nobody gets killed. And it's a marvel to me because you would never see that in a movie now and you i was saying you know if off. they did this movie today mm-hmm. the movie would start with them going to the prom they'd be at the prom in the first 10 minutes and then the killing would start immediately and
1: it's almost like a movie we watched
0: it is we will we'll get to that later uh, but suffice it to say i was impressed with the way they set it up and it made it a little bit more of a noir mystery crime thriller
1: again that's that giallo feeling yeah
0: and i mean there was one more death in the middle but they don't show it to you there's a sort of subplot where they had pinned the death of her sister on a local like pedophile like somebody who had lived near there and had a record. And when police went to question him about the death of the girl, he fled from police. Fiery car crash ends up in the hospital and they just decide that means he did it. Mm -hmm. And they put him in an institution. And this movie starts by saying he's escaped from this institution. Yeah. And they spend the cops spend a lot of time trying to chase him down, including finding the body of the nurse that he abducted in order to escape terribly mutilated in a way no one's ever seen before (laughs) under a sheet in the abandoned old school where the original death happened. And they, they do the sort of tasteful thing of lifting the sheet to show the cop what she looks like and then putting it back down, but not showing the Mm -hmm. audience. And it, it, at least doesn't really feel gratuitous then in that way. So that's kind of that sort of roving subplot the whole time
1: i also have to point out there's not a lot of violence like gore in this although uh this was a re- this was released by avco embassy our friends from phantasm in the fog and they demanded graphic violence which leads to basically the showpiece of this movie is uh, lou farmer's decapitation and and he really is like neanderthal type of character he's just but that sequence is is nicely done is followed up by um the disco fight. I mean it's also interesting too. We talked about how long it takes to get to the violence. Oh, and another mention I gotta make. Granted, it's a full disclosure is that you grow up as a geeky little kid with curly hair. I would gravitate to certain situations and characters in these movies. It just was the way it is. Now anybody who knows the Friday the 13th movies knows that Shelly in Friday 13th 3 is an idiot. But as a kid It bothered me because he's the curly-headed guy. He also is definitely Jewish. And, you know, he's not going to get anything. And then he gets killed. But he's also an ass in the movie. So you can't have any real sympathy for him. However, you get a character in this, Slick, who's like a chubby, curly-headed guy. Definitely the character in any teen movie who's not going to get anybody.
0: And is going to get killed first. And is
1: going to get killed first. And he gets a cute girl who's really into him for reasons that we never really quite figure out, but obviously he's a nice guy and they get together in the movie and they're having a great time and they have sex and it's like everything that you wouldn't expect to happen in one of these movies happens and then they both get killed. And I was really, really deeply offended by that. (laughs) It's like, let these two have some happiness. They did have
0: some happiness. Yeah,
1: but then it's over. (laughs) And then what? The whole van explodes. It's, you know, it's not the way you'd want to end prom night is what I'm saying.
0: In a van explosion. Uh,
1: But between the explosion and the gore, there's some, you know, slasher related stuff. But like we were saying, it takes a while to get to that. And there's also an extended disco dance sequence.
0: I firmly believe now, after seeing this, that all films should be legally required to include at least one disco fight
1: period it's a good fight
0: i don't even care what genre the movie's in rom-com world war ii drama <laughs> <laughs> like i don't care i want a disco fight in every movie
1: it's a good showdown it really yeah. is yeah there's a lot of great stuff in this well, like you said it's very artfully done uh, the characters are authentic and there is a genuine mystery that you can spend some time trying to piece together I just wish that the ending wasn't quite so abrupt.
0: I think one of the things the movie also handles really well is bullies and like seeing what they're like in like a much more like visceral kind of aggressive way because you have from the start I mean from when they're kids there's one girl who's kind of bullying the rest of the kids and to not going to the police um which is wendy and she is the one who basically says like everybody get on board here or else like i'm coming after you myself and when they are growing up and now they're high school seniors she's still that person she's still the bully she's still the one who tries to control every situation but they're no longer really close friends and she'd recently broken up with Nick, who is one of the that core group. And he turned around and started dating Kim, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis' character. He's taking her to prom. They're going to be prom king and queen, which in this world they know in advance. Like They practice their like entrance to be announced king and queen. So I know I...
1: you were also thrown by the fact that it's going to be more than just a senior class. I'm not that clear on that because I never... yeah i mean it
0: sounds like basically juniors and seniors both go to the prom here which would make sense to me that maybe that's a tradition in some places like rising seniors and graduating seniors oh and just
1: a side note too even though this was done in canada this movie really worked hard and did a decent job of trying to convince you they're in ohio they actually put license plates on the cars and i did find out afterward that there's a close-up of the phone They actually put the right area code on the phone.
0: Yes, but they left all of the cops in the uniform of the Ontario Provincial Police.
1: I didn't say it was perfect.
0: I know this because I lived in Ontario for like two years. And uh, the moment I saw them, I was like, oh, I guess they're really just going to go ahead and set this in Canada because they're wearing the uniforms of the police in Ontario. And then we're like, oh, no wait, Ohio. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they almost got there. They they didn't quite go with generic cop uniform. Maybe they didn't even know that, like, what they would consider generic cop uniform there isn't the same Maybe. as it would be in the U.S. So, yeah, I, I guess. But, yeah, apparently they have the juniors and seniors are together at the prom. They know they're going to be king and queen of the prom. They've had time to prepare a choreographed dance number, which I think also... I feel like is one of the things that inspired movies after it um, to do like those coordinated dances. You're always like, who has time to practice? I think my favorite is um, there's the movie. She's all that um, with uh, Freddie Prince jr. And like, they have their big prom and they do like this massive choreographed dance to fat boy slim that like who has time to learn? I don't know, but Apparently Jamie Lee Curtis really was a dancer and had to audition to dance and did all the choreography in this. So kudos to her.
1: Sad note about one of the things we we still always wind up finding some tragedy somewhere is that the one who does the number with her, who's playing Nick, Casey Stevens, I found out died only a few years later from AIDS. And that apparently his career was starting to take off with this and a couple other films. This movie did extremely well. Both locally and then it went wider in the U.S. and did very well. So
0: and rightfully so. I mean, it's a really well put together film.
1: So yeah, that's that's uh, a sad footnote. And you were mentioning Wendy. I did want to mention that Wendy is played by Eddie Benton, who's also credited as Anne Marie Martin. And uh, some interesting things about her. Anybody remembers Halloween too? She's the one who's. Uh, the friend, Pamela Susan Shoop's nurse character, she's the friend who's asking her to give her a ride and needs to take her home before she goes over to the hospital. So she's in Halloween too. briefly. She was also married to Michael Crichton from uh, 1987 to 2003 and co-wrote the screenplay to Twister. So weird couple of connections there to other things in pop culture. I, I will say that of all the stuff we're saying is positive, one of the things that I didn't care for too much i think it's the one who's playing her friend kelly and her death i felt was uncomfortable like she actually stands up for herself and won't have sex with the guy like he takes her off so was like the locker room i think or, or very
0: like, romantic uh, soft and supple locker room bench
1: and she actually says you know she finally says she's not going to do anything mm-hmm. and she's killed like immediately after and it's a weird uncomfortable note there particularly given that like one of the things we come to expect from the genre for good and bad whatever it's just part of it is this idea that somehow sex is transgressive and death comes after that she actually not only didn't but didn't because she was standing up for herself and felt it wasn't right and was making her own decision and then she dies well,
0: for them in this movie, though, the transgression happened when they were children. I mean, the transgression was their responsibility in the death of a girl and their sort of unwillingness to own up to it and mm. to say, because if they had just said, like, we were playing and this was an accident and she fell out the window, none of them would have gotten in trouble with the cops. They're like eight years old. Mm-hmm. you know eight nine years old and kids do this stuff and the it thing, happens the thing
1: is it would have been a lie if they said oh this was an accident you know i think wendy says at the time as the little girl wendy i think she says it was an accident mm-hmm. and it's like it's not an accident when all of you are literally physically pushing her to the window and screaming at her the killers are coming it's they hounded her straight out the building to her death
0: and we don't even really know Why? Like we don't know why they didn't like her or why they did it.
1: And I was saying at the time, it's like, what was the actual end game there? Like, when were they gonna stop? Like, when was the point where they're gonna suddenly say, "All right, now we're done"? Because she's right there at the window, where they suddenly just go, "Okay, now now we're finished." I don't know. But now instead,
0: yeah. So I mean, their their transgression happened a lot earlier, and it just kind of plays out the way it plays out. In fact. Aside from the uh, sort of Neanderthal other bully who essentially accidentally gets beheaded in place of one of the other characters that the killer thinks that he's going after. Right. Because he's going to play this prank at, at Wendy's behest where they're going to come out instead as the king and queen. And that
1: sequence is very carry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, they're going to tie up the actual king and queen in the back and they'll come out instead except that Wendy doesn't show up. She's already been murdered. So um, he's just like, yeah, let, let Kim come out instead. Tells his little henchman and he puts on the jacket and the crown. And so the killer doesn't even know it's not his mark. So aside from that and from a uh, poor slick in the van, just because he happened to be there, nobody else is targeted to die. Right. Like, You were talking about how she sort of fights off her date and says, I I don't want to do this. And he storms out of the locker room and like, that's fine. I'll find somebody else. He comes out of it fine Mm -hmm. because he's not on the hit list. And I feel like in a movie now, he would have walked out of the locker room. And in walking out, the killer would have killed him in the hallway first. Yeah. um, Just to kind of clear the path. But in this, it's a very targeted list.
1: Well... It also reminds me a little bit of the kind of things Randy would say in a screen movie. He would say it about a sequel, but it also counts for like later is that like the kill count would definitely be going up as the years went on. The need to have more killing more graphic events in one of these movies mm. was driving the market to you know or rather the market they what the market they believed to be was driving the decision to do that and in this case, these early ones that were sort of the foundation of the American Slasher genre of the eighties are surprisingly economical and like how much death is actually depicted and adheres to a plot, and it's not just oh well, might as well kill this next one because that's the next thing that's happening, but a few years later, it would have been about how many can we get in here, you yeah, know?
0: so I do think that that is another interesting piece to it that there is some collateral death, but not as much as you would see in a movie now. Um, but ultimately, I think it's, it's a, just a really interesting movie. It's interesting to watch, and it's interestingly filmed.
1: It's also, uh, despite the fact that today we now regard it as one of these uh, influential films, and certainly one of the first films to really open up the idea of what this kind of movie would be, for the next several years to come it's also partially a victim of timing although it did very well monetarily it also came out two months after friday the 13th and it was going to originally be distributed by paramount who wanted to do one but they wound up going with afco embassy because afco said we're going to put it in over a thousand theaters paramount was only going to open it in 300 so they thought okay afco So in the meantime, Paramount picked up Friday the 13th, and two months before this came out, that came out. And the thing is, it didn't necessarily mean the prom night didn't do well, but what it did mean was it was swamped culturally by the effect that Friday the 13th had on everybody. And I've read so much since we were watching it, That said like all the things we talked about the style of this movie and we've seen the Friday 13th movies a lot over and over again in the last couple years there's a style and an artistry to this one that is definitely superior to the first Friday 13th but for whatever number of reasons Friday the 13th is the one that captured people's imagination in a way this one didn't this one did wind up having sequels none of them are really related they're all really weird and much cheaper But Friday the 13th became a juggernaut.
0: When you say capture people's imaginations, I mean, Friday the 13th is a dreamscape. Like, there's so much going on there. It's another world. It's otherworldly. It has a very clear sort of monster at the center of it that could be the icon, like your villain. Eventually,
1: yeah.
0: Prom night, you have somebody who looks like a cat burglar. He's yeah. just dressed all in black with black gloves. But and he does like have a, a very balaclava.
1: sparkly mask. The
0: balaclava is like very. It's disco. Yeah, it's disco. It is. It is disco. Burglar attacks the See, prom.
1: If I were doing a remake, maybe you throw out a lot of things from this movie, mm-hmm. but you bring the sparkly mask back and the disco. Yeah, you do. Some, it's a disco throwback party. It there... is two
0: hours of disco fighting, no dialogue.
1: There are so many things you could do with a remake that are perfectly obvious. And yet, someone who did decide to do a remake did none of them. None of them. But we'll get to that. So moving on to our other main feature is the one that I do remember, at least in part, and for whatever reason saw many times in those early days of cable movie channels, Terror Train. They're always walking out of my parties, but this time, you can't also Canadian. And I mentioned the connections, like Paul Lynch, the director of Prom Night, had had this meeting with Yablons, or Yablons, I think it's Yablons, uh, from Halloween. And the producer, Daniel Grobnik, who was working in Canada on this idea of Terror Train, was a friend of Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and had actually gotten their blessing when he said, I want to do Halloween on a train. And they were like, okay, sure, go for it. And then his (laughs) next thing was, well, we're going to need one person to make that official. And that was Jamie Lee Curtis. And she literally uh, went to the Terror Train set, apparently, I don't know, what was it, within weeks of finishing prom night or something? But it was like right after this. It
0: was like a Canadian filming vacation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And again, a lot of the people involved in this were students or stage and theater people locally. This one also has a lot of the same hallmarks of both the Canadian horror film of the 80s and what we just saw with Prom Night, which is you got Jamie Lee Curtis. You also then get one older character actor. who's was Leslie Nielsen in Prom Night. In this, it's legendary Western and other character actor, Ben Johnson, who does a phenomenal job. I think I really liked him this time watching it as the train conductor and in a way serves as our authority figure and almost like police He's sort of like your Barreau. Yeah, and and he's great there, and apparently he loved the idea of doing it and thought it was a cute idea, like, I'll do one of these. And most of the rest of the movie is filled with people that you wouldn't recognize, although anybody that knows Die Hard will see a very young Hart Bachner as Doc in this, and David Copperfield, who had just a few years prior really started kicking into high gear with his network television career doing his magic specials, and he appears as the magician in this, and actually a deliberate suspect who, just by virtue of being David Copperfield, even then, I thought, well, it's way too obvious to put David Copperfield in there. You're not gonna make him the killer, so that was
0: and one of the <clears throat> things we talked about too we were watching it is the fact that David Copperfield is pretty much just playing himself in all ways, like he's a jackass, yeah, and I... he's perfectly okay. With that, because I guess it's sort of part of his persona, is being, like, so cool he hates you.
1: (laughs) He's too cool to really be spending time with you, so it's a favor he's doing.
0: Yeah, like, I guess you can watch this magic even though clearly you don't deserve it.
1: You don't deserve his lapels either. No. Which are huge.
0: I'm not even sure he deserves his lapels, to be honest.
1: (laughs) But I guess we should also set the uh, the stage for this one. So, in this one, Jamie Lee Curtis is gone within months from being a high school student enjoying prom night to being a medical student enjoying graduation. For some reason, their university medical school is graduating at Christmas time or New Year's.
0: She's graduating a semester early because she has to work to pay for medical school. Okay, I'm
1: glad you caught that. And it's she-
0: literally like a two line. Throw away in a conversation with one of her friends. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't be clear that that's what's going on. And
1: this setup for the opening sequence, the stand, the eventually standard slasher opening of here's the creation of a killer. We had the little kids and the, the death of a friend, or not quite a friend for them, but anyway, in Prime classmate. Night. Yeah, and in this one, it's very much more the sort of thing you start to see mimicked in a hundred other films. In which a group of college, well, you know, graduate students, whatever, hound the virginal, weak guy, and the,
0: I think they're they're meant to be pledges to the fraternity, yeah. and
1: they set him up with a situation, quite a damn horrific one, to claim that the girl is waiting for him in the room, and it's supposed to be Jamie Lee Curtis's character, of Elena, except that they've put an actual damn corpse in the bed and are going to have him try to kiss and make out with the corpse and of course he realizes that but he goes completely insane the image of him spinning around in the sheets is something that i've always remembered it's one of the images from this that i never forgot even when i couldn't remember a lot of the movie always mm. remember that and then we flash forward three years to them getting on a train for their big graduation celebration which is also a new year's party and a magic show and, and a masquerade uh, and it's also one of the more clever now, now Terra train has not nearly the same level of artistry and filmmaking the prom night does Mm-mm. this was however directed by roger spottiswood who would one day go on to direct tomorrow never dies one of the bond movies a couple other things it's done well but it is not stylistically a standout however even we noticed, it's pretty clever how they really do put you on that train. As we found out later, they shot with a real train car. They actually had stagehands rocking it all the time. The guy did the lighting had to come up with really intense ways to light everything because they were actually shooting inside the confines of a train car. It wasn't like you would normally do, like we're going to shoot like a three-quarter thing and pull a wall out. Mm-hmm. They actually were doing that. So there's a sense of claustrophobia, and a real feeling of being on that train with everybody that now even as i'm talking about it to you right now i realize this is probably why this movie stuck with me it's a variation of the house effect i like being on that train for a while
0: and there's nowhere you can go there's no leaving you're between towns
1: we're told there's no radio that they Mm -hmm. couldn't even afford to put the radio on certainly nobody has a cell phone back then
0: and it's I think the reason they don't have a radio in essence is because this is an excursion train. It's not meant to be a passenger train. It's the kind of thing that people use for parties or for events. I know, for example, there are things that exist like this where my sister has taken our niece. On one where it's like a little day trip where like the kids could go Mm -hmm. on a train and it just goes between like two stations on a track and then they get to ride the train and sort of have the experience like sort of like a historical reenactment. So I guess at the time, this was something that was sort of similar that it's this train that just goes from one station to another it has a set route, there is nothing in between. And once it gets going, the only thing you can do really is just like get to your end destination because they're sort of stuck in the middle. The conductor's trying to figure out what to do and realizes basically they have to just keep going until they get where they're going, because otherwise they can't get any help.
1: I don't want to get back on that track. Nobody does. Another thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about familiar faces, there is someone else in this that some people right, recognize, which is that uh, 80s and early 90s star Vanity, who a lot of people knew as working with and being with Prince for a while, and also as a singer in her own right, appears in this. She also did a number of movies, and I didn't find out until just now. Is our, I didn't realize she died. She died pretty young. She died 57. But Vanity is in this. Um, she's credited as Denise... It was denise catherine matthews is a real name she's credited as dd Dee Dee winters but anyway she's one of the the Why does everybody
0: have 50 names i don't know they're these. all a
1: million names despite a lack of stylistic filmmaking quite the same way there's some interesting stuff in this there's that claustrophobic thing we we're just talking about another thing that's pretty cool is the idea that the killer assumes an identity with a mask but the trick in terror train is that he keeps hopping from one mask and identity to the other. Basically, for the most part, the person he's just killed, he takes their costume and mask, because everybody's wearing costumes and masks in the party, and basically hops through the train with people believing him to be the different people at different times. And that's an interesting twist on the idea of the killer assuming a masked persona, is that it changes throughout the film. He starts out as the Groucho Marx character that appears on the posters and that a lot of people remember.
0: That guy doesn't even make it on the train. He gets killed he on the tracks.
1: He doesn't even get on board. <laughs> and they're like, good trick there, buddy. <laughs> he just dies. And then moves through to this lizard mask and then eventually by the end, this old man uh, face that also is pretty familiar to, to people from a lot of pictures from this. And one of the other interesting things, we talked about the, the odd note of the character in prom night apparently dressing up to look like his sister wearing makeup this character as a kid i watched terror train a lot and always wondered why the guy playing the killer looked weird to me he has very uh, pencil thin eyebrows and he's just a strange looking guy but very angular face high cheekbones And as a kid, I always felt like I was seeing something odd there something I couldn't quite identify, but didn't know what I was looking at. And now all these years later, we watch RuPaul all the time. And I realized what I was seeing was he's a transvestite. He really was a transvestite. The actor. The actor himself, Derek McKinnon, who plays Kenny Hampson, the killer in Terror Train, was an actual transvestite in real life and a drag queen. And still, many many years later, continues to do like local theater and does performances, and that which also
0: not necessarily go hand in hand being a transvestite and being a drag queen, right? But he does happen to be both,
1: right? And I would argue one of the most effective beats in this movie, and one I think that genuinely worked on you. I don't think you picked up on it. Mm. Is he's in full view in a couple scenes as David Copperfield's assistant? Very well done. You know how he does it. Yeah. How? We're sworn to secrecy. And the one thing they did do that was a bit of a cheat is they dub over his voice with a woman's voice when you're hearing him speak as the assistant.
0: Okay. Well, maybe that's why.
1: And he's hiding in plain view. You know, there's even there's the fake out of like, is it David Copperfield? And he tries to throw suspicion on the magician himself and then it turns out that it's not the magician it's the assistant
0: and it's a real gratifying moment when they open a box and david copperfield's just jabbed through with a bunch of swords and you're like
1: yeah he is but what i will say about this though that i wonder particularly as having seen this as a kid is the degree to which we could argue that this movie even though it's not part of the plot because kenny in the film is not a transvestite Mm. But is this movie part of the whole thing culturally of demonizing Transvestism mm-hmm. or, or drag queens and is it a bad thing?
0: You're thinking like Silence of the Lambs.
1: Yeah, demonizing. I mean, is this is this a movie that contributes to that in some way because they put a Transvestite in the role of the killer and utilized his talents in a way to help sell that character?
0: I would say it's complicated and my I- instinct is to say not necessarily and i say that only because it's not at all woven into the plot right like there is no component of the plot that demonizes or in some way makes it taboo that he's dressing as a woman it's just sort of presented as it's sort of like this plot vein of the magician's assistant always being the one that's doing the tricks, really. Um, like right. that thought of like the magician's assistant is also a magician that they, they both have to be magicians in their own right in order for the tricks to work. So in essence, this is one where the suspicion gets thrown on the magician as it does in an act, but really it's the magician's assistant who is committing the crimes in the same way that it's also that person who is completing the magic tricks when they're on stage and they even have that conversation at the end cuz there's this point in the plot where Elena who's Jamie Lee Curtis's character remembers that Kenny liked magic and liked doing magic and that's when they think oh he must have hired the magician and the magician is the one coming after them so they have this beat where it's like her and him in sort of this final showdown sitting across the table from each other and she's saying to him like you're a better magician like you can do this better and in essence she's sort of right i mean he was the better magician he was the better magician he's the one doing the tricks and so they kind of present it as it's all part of the illusion of magic and not something that is a behavior That is depraved. Okay. Um, So to me, that is, that's the impression I got from it. But also, I don't know, I guess, what it would have been like to see it as a kid and feel differently. Because I'm coming to it from a place where I'm already educated on a wide variety of things related to this, including magic, including people dressing in drag, including transvestites, Mm -hmm. including people who shave their eyebrows off and pencil them back in, which is what diner waitresses in Baltimore have done my entire (laughs) life. So I don't know that I would have even looked at his face and seen anything different in it because every waitress that ever gave me soup as a child had (laughs) eyebrows like that. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I would have felt like then. I do think the fact that they also cast someone who himself considers himself both a transvestite and a drag queen does perform even now still. Like you found performance photos yeah, even
1: from years ago. He was from, still doing like
0: stuff. recent years of him yeah. still performing in drag means that they got someone involved in it who is also an artist in his own right. And so it's not somebody doing something performative either. They're not hiring an actor who has never put on a dress before and saying, put this on.
1: A couple other things, too, as you mentioned, the final showdown. And it's one of my favorite, I think, moments at the end of any slasher movie because it feels like it goes in a totally different direction. And I found out now that it was Jamie Lee Curtis's idea entirely she came up with the idea that basically at the end of the movie when they're face to face and she's telling him you're the better magician i think he says kiss me Mm -hmm. which you know recalls the thing from the past where it was supposed to be he was getting together with her and she actually kisses him which i don't think he's expecting her to actually do even while he's like holding her hands and threatening her and it instantly triggers a flashback for him to that giving them the the opening they need for ben johnson to come in as the hero and smack him over the head and knock him out of the train but that kiss is just it's such a different approach to say okay we're going to defeat this character not just by something physical but by psychologically disarming him by taking the power away and also the way you were mentioning about magic i've only discovered now just how many people have really looked at this movie you talked about prom night has like a dreamscape quality Mm -hmm. we talked about that before A lot of people looked at this movie as being thematically exploring the idea of reality and illusion and in a way I guess you can argue his constant shifting of identity and different masks is like a sleight of hand trick where he's moving from one to the other. I still love uh, another moment I like in this a lot that's always stuck with me is the scene where He's still in the Groucho Marx mask and we get this incredibly huge close-up where all you see is his eyes. I mean, the rest is all mask. And he's going to kill one person but gets distracted because another one starts talking to him thinking they're talking to the guy who is wearing the Groucho Marx mask. And it changes his decision. He decides to go after the other one because they're basically pissing him off. They're being an ass. But the look in his eyes in that moment is just like, it's like you it's like fine you you are next there's a it's amazing to me for someone that everybody said was inexperienced as an actor and apparently they didn't get along all that well him and, and spottiswood was didn't work out too well with him doing it apparently he didn't understand they claim anyway they claim he didn't understand things like actors need to show up on time and i'm thinking. The guy was a performer. How likely is it that he didn't understand showing up on time? Seriously. So, for whatever reason, apparently there was tension. But I think it says a lot that he's got a big mask on, and his eyes are telling me everything I need to know about his attitude toward that guy, and how annoyed he is. And I thought that's he's acting. That's fine. It's working fine. Always stuck with me. So
0: it's got not a, a lot of nice little touches. It's sort of, there's the the first moment where the train conductor finds the person in the lizard costume, like, dead in the bathroom, smashed mirror, blood everywhere, and he locks the door and is like, I don't know what I'm going to do here, and gets one of the other train employees and was like, all right, you got to see this too. And opens the door and it's completely clean. Mm -hmm. The guy's there. Everything smells like booze. And he's like, this guy's just dead drunk. And like, he's looking around, like, where did all the blood go? And he's baffled by it. And like, we as the audience know, well, it's because the killer cleaned up the body and then got in the costume. But then there's this moment where the conductor goes back to that bathroom and like looks around and takes a cloth and goes up under event and wipes under it and pulls it out and there's blood on the cloth because he's thinking you can't clean what you can't see and it's this beautiful i mean that to me very much is like the agatha christie moment on the train where he's like this is real and like i'm not imagining things
1: i like him a lot in this he comes across as very competent and uh a guy you can put some trust in Mm -hmm. you know to try to protect you and and i think it's like both of these movies have a lot to recommend them in their own ways and really help to establish a certain pattern and of course then you get dozens of copycats and you know the cutting classes of the world that are just terrible but (laughs) these are these are very good and i think also this one remembering it to a certain extent and going back and seeing it now it was a fun nostalgic trip to get on that train again. But I also I think I have more respect for it now seeing it again. I thought it not only holds up, but there's a lot to recommend it.
0: It's a very unique movie. I don't know that even seeing as many slashers as we've seen as many crime thrillers, whodunits, that kind of stuff. It's like it takes elements from all of it and it does it well i mean i i think that terror train as well is definitely a movie worth seeing and i'm honestly surprised that i haven't up until this point i guess it just in premise just sounds very run-of-the-mill now like when you look back at slash it's a bad title it's a bad title I, I
1: think the title is pretty pedestrian and just so sounds, is prom night they both sound lame as yeah. far as titles but but then again in a way couldn't we say that about Halloween if we didn't know Halloween? Like, it's just like they just named after the holiday, but it just then becomes iconic. I guess so.
0: I guess it's like having a movie and just calling it Arbor Day. That's
1: right. Yeah.
0: But... Um, like the Charlie
1: Brown special.
0: But I guess, yeah, Halloween maybe became earned in that way. And I at least so. Halloween's a spooky holiday. It's like prom night is typically not associated No. With horror. well i mean i guess it is now yeah I mean, now, now, now is. any kind of occasion to have kids together is gonna be fodder for a slasher
1: terror train is just kind of lazy as a title it deserved better mm-hmm. i think but it doesn't matter i mean so get past the title and watch the movie and you'll see that it's worth it and both of these are a great example of how she really racked up an extraordinary amount of work in a short space of time. And had
0: magnificent hair.
1: She really did have great hair. Which she is still the one... does. She
0: still does have magnificent hair. Which is the
1: one that you thought was the best hair of them? Was it this one?
0: I think Terror Train, she's got...
1: So that's the end of the year. The
0: best hair.
1: So she was growing into the, the look from the fog and on. And then I guess that means shortly after this is when she cut her hair
0: and then had to wear the wig for halloween too yeah which is the worst hair
1: and then started (laughs) keeping her hair i think she's more or less kept her hair short for the rest of her career and liked it It better that way well finally we do have one other thing we wanted to talk about
0: very briefly
1: the night we watched prom night i was talking about the fact there are like uh three sequels i think they're maybe one day we'll see them at some point but they're all unrelated I think the one thing that's supposed to link them is that technically they're all supposed to take place in the same high school. But if I remember right, at least one of them is genuinely supernatural. And and Mm. maybe all of them are. I don't know. Uh, But there are some sequels and they're all garbage. Um, (laughs) I could say that not even having seen them. (laughs) Um, But I was surprised to find out. You were surprised. We didn't even realize they had actually done a remake. I mean, there have been a lot of these over the years, and this one falls in 2008, right around that time where it seems like everybody was casting around for what other classic horror movies or classic titles they could do a remake of. And, and so-
0: failing at it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there there are remakes that some people have liked. Even some people like, I still have never seen the whole thing all the way through, but the Friday 13th remake, some people like it. It. And then we looked it up, and it's like, this is an American-Canadian movie. It has Idris Elba in it and Britney Snow from Pitch Perfect and a million other things as the lead. And we thought, wow, a remake. It was late at night, but you said, you want to just roll on and watch the next, the, watch the remake? And it's sing. also a
0: solid hour and a half. So it, it does keep in the runtime of the original.
1: And I thought, awesome. And then we started watching it. <laughs> and I wouldn't necessarily say this is one of the worst movies we've ever seen. We seem to say that a lot lately. First of all, it can't be because it's a relatively polished looking movie in terms of modern movie making technology. <laughs> the, the pictures look good and there's, you know, cameras are capturing dialogue and things.
0: A hotel employee very reliably knows all the exits. So
1: that's right. He's
0: doing a very good job.
1: There's a decent depiction of a police officer asking a hotel representative for some help and getting it. So that part's played fine. by
0: Idris Elba, who does a bang up job in anything he ever does.
1: He, well, here's the thing. He's awesome. As the detective does an amazing American accent. It's only like a year or two before he starts doing his own detective show, Luther, but as competent as he comes across, I think his character of, what is it? Detective win. I think it is. He comes across as competent and in charge and knows his job. And yet, pretty much thoroughly fails at everything he's trying to do throughout the movie. (laughs) So I think that illusion of competence is only coming across to us because it's Idris Elba.
0: Right. But he has his own gravitas that he brings with him.
1: Idris Elba is competent. Detective Wynn is an idiot. (laughs) And like even down to things like at a crucial moment where he's like, there's a girl who is directly in danger of murder. And he sends this like wispy idiot lieutenant of his or something. Go get her, why don't you? It's like, you go get her. You do the job. Instead of standing and looking imposing. But Brittany Snow... So one of the things we noticed right away is this movie was intended as a remake. They They bought the rights. They bought the rights. They worked with the people who are the rights holders to the name and the sequels and all that. It's a remake of Prom Night. It was sold as a remake of Prom Night. Except for the title Prom Night and the fact that it happens at a prom... There is absolutely zero connection to prom night in every conceivable way. Oh, and
0: somebody escapes from a, a mental institution.
1: But that's our actual killer in this one.
0: Yeah, and we know it right from the start.
1: There's no mystery. <laughs> but that's I'm right. saying that's
0: still that's still an element that is the okay, same.
1: Fair enough. That that there is no mystery. It's not structured as a mystery, in that you know who the killer is immediately. There is a completely different backstory. A far more horrific and emotionally hurtful, and I almost felt like, I don't even need to see this kind of story.
0: And remember how I said if they were making this movie today, they would just start it at the prom and get the killing going from there? But guess what?
1: (laughs) What's the most obvious choice to make? That's what they did. Mm -hmm. And this one starts with someone watching their entire family being slaughtered, discovering their entire family being slaughtered, seeing their mother being killed in front of them. Because, as we find out in a very quick info dump, a teacher—how this person ever got that job, as you said, makes no sense—is obsessed with her above all else. Well, murdered... once the
0: once the wonders fell through and the band didn't exist anymore.
1: Oh, that's right. So it's Jonathan Check from that thing you do, and and who's also a UMBC alum like me. <laughs> um, Decided, oh, I'm going to get a job, and he's the killer in this. So, and anywho,
0: he's her teacher.
1: He's her teacher. He looks like Charles Manson at the beginning. I mean, they just literally make him look like Charles Manson. They do. After she's watched her entire family, uh, where her mother and her whole family's been killed, we flash forward to, I guess the flash forward or the flashback is also briefly a, a slight structural connection I, but I, get, I
0: mean it's basically it's giving you the backstory by way of her telling her therapist played by Mignawen for like two seconds she's that she's having this nightmare over and over again about the night she saw her family killed and her response is well things are changing in your life so yeah you're gonna flash back to when your whole family was killed have a good prom
1: and then everybody else is like we got ready for prom and i kept thinking through the whole movie how does one recover from that
0: you ever you don't
1: and by the end of this film with everything that happens that night including losing everyone close to her all i can think is she's done forever this person will never be whole again Ever. she could
0: date her best friend's boyfriend because i don't think he dies
1: Well, <laughs> there's that anyway it's a horrible story and as a, a very mo-
0: unrealistic prom
1: extremely yeah and that is one thing and in contrast to the the 1980 one that felt very real this one has your standard feature film thing of being in like a palatial hotel where like they're, they're they've they
0: rented out the whole like ballroom they're like
1: projecting everything on the walls and and uh
0: she and her high school friends have rented like a luxury suite for yeah. the night like the kind of suite they take you on a tour of at a hotel hoping that you'll pay for an upgrade and they're like yeah we just booked that for the night we're 17 whatever
1: this also has like some of the hallmarks of the modern slasher kind of thing it's more emotionally devastating in a way that i find uncomfortable the killings feel less like i know it's crazy to say but we talk about this we talk about movies sometimes characters are set up that like you you're supposed to hate them where they're supposed to deserve, even like in the original Prom Night, like you pointed out, Mm -hmm. they were part of something that there's their transgression. That's the thing that's the 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 You can see the reason behind it. Yeah, and they may not be that they deserve to die, but the point is they did something that caused the death of another person. In this, there's so much death that is totally unwarranted and for people that don't deserve it in any way. And granted, you do see that in a lot of these movies also, but it just felt particularly... It started off at such a level of tragedy and then continued. And yet at the same time, this movie also has one of those modern hallmarks of not really wanting to completely give itself over to the more exploitative aspects of it. So they don't really show you all that much. There's not a lot of actual on-screen violence or gore. And I found out there's actually an unrated cut of this that shows maybe like a few extra seconds of things yeah, but I'm, I'm good there's no need for that so it's um it's terrible
0: it's terrible you don't need to watch it essentially the original movie is sort of a, a combination of like a slasher serial killer with like a crime thriller with sort of like the giallo elements you were saying this is just a stalker movie it is just a movie about a guy stalking a high school girl killing her whole family waiting three years escaping stalking her again could have grabbed her at any time throughout the night but instead just like slowly kills all the people around her Yeah, that's right a lot and of then this- like stalks her back to her house where he continues killing and then is like you ready to come home with me like what what Like, there's no point. Like, he could have just grabbed her at the hotel the first time he saw her and took her away with him. But instead, he's like, I'm just going to do some murders first, babe, and then I'll be back for you.
1: Yeah, none of the killings are like, we talked at the time, there's not, these people aren't in her, in his way. Not at all. Like, there's no real reason for it. He could have grabbed her. What's his end game here? Because he wants to take her away with him. How's that going to work out? How, how long, but the thing is, tragically, in the real world there are stories about people who've held people for a long period of time Mm -hmm. but that's basically what's going on here he would have to kidnap her and hold her hostage for an indeterminate period of time She's going to, you know, she's going to find a way to kill him and hopefully an escape. But again, the thing is, it's like this is a person whose life has now become complete trauma and she will never recover from this.
0: Not only that, but much like the other two movies we watched for this show, it just sort of ends like abruptly. Like he's got her hostage in her bedroom and then she manages to scream and Idris Elba comes running in and shoots the guy. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to jump back up again. Like, he he took a bulletproof vest or whatever. Like, walk over to him and, like, put one in his head. But instead, everybody just hugs and cries. And then the credits roll. And you're like, oh, I guess that worked.
1: Yeah, we did mention Prom Night and also Terror Train both end really abruptly.
0: At least Terror Train, like, shows you the killer floating
1: mm-hmm. dead
0: down a river. Dead, question mark, down a river. He's, he's very dead, I'm sure, at that point. But Prom Night... Like she like unmasked him. She's like, "Oh, it's my brother!" And he's like, "I did it for our sister credits." And it's just like a a photo of the school and like some touching music and like credits roll. Like that's it. We're done. Everybody go
1: home. Movie's over. Speaking of music, the score for the prom night remake. <laughs> <laughs> Let listeners, you didn't see Natalie's face drop, but I just wanted to make sure you understood that I apparently was said something wrong (laughs) bringing up the music i
0: i don't think anything could get me to watch the prom night remake again but i would consider it if somebody were to take the disco music from the original (laughs) and patch it in over the music in in prom night
1: if jonathan sheck and indra selba had a disco fight at the end of the movie
0: yeah i'm here for that
1: Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky, that's of sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Prom Night, 1980, Terror Train, also 1980, and also Prom Night, 2008. And uh, if you're keeping track, that's two yeses and a hell no. Ghouls in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, do you take a chance getting up in the morning, crossing the street, or sticking your face in a fan?